Welcome to Making Therapy Better, the podcast that brings together some of the top minds in psychotherapy as well as everyday clinicians to talk about where the field is headed and how we can achieve better mental health care for everyone. Making Therapy Better is hosted by Professor Bruce Wampold, who has dedicated his career to understanding how therapy works and advocating evidence-based methods for improving outcomes. His guest today is Dr. Jesse Owen. Dr. Owen is a professor in the Counseling Psychology Department at the University of Denver. He's a licensed psychologist whose specializations include couple and family therapy, as well as multicultural therapy. He holds various positions, including lead psychologist at Lifelong Inc. and editor for the journal Psychotherapy. He has co-authored three books and published over 180 articles and book chapters. His research focuses on the process and outcomes of psychotherapy, with a focus on therapist expertise and multicultural orientation. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths has been helping in-person and virtual therapy practices thrive for over 20 years with their complete web-based EHR and practice management platform. As mental health care evolves, CarePaths is leading the way in making measurement-based care easy and cost-effective for therapists. Visit carepaths.com to sign up for a free trial today. And now, without further ado, Episode 4 of Making Therapy Better, Multicultural Therapy with Dr. Jesse Owen. So Jesse, it's great to have you today. Um, you know, I've known and worked with you for quite some time now. Your interests are diverse. You've done research on uh, couples and dating. You've done research on psychotherapy process and outcome. And you've uh, spent much of your career looking at issues of culture and diversity. And I'd really like to begin the interview to talk about the latter, uh, uh, cultural diversity, racial and ethnic minorities, and the treatment they receive, um, particularly in the United States. You know, as we know, um, many people suffering from mental distress do not receive treatment. Now, this may be because they don't seek treatment. They don't feel like mental health treatment. They don't want to go to a to somebody who's a shrink and, and talk about their, their emotions. But also there's a problem with access of care. And this is particularly acute for racial and ethnic minority um, people who are suffering uh, some distress. So, um, and when they do seek services, as you know, there's some evidence they're treated differently. So. I'd like to start the interview by having you discuss your perceptions of these issues and where we are with the mental health treatment for um, people who are not, let's say, white, middle-class, educated uh, um, people. Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me. This is this great opportunity to share some thoughts on these ideas and I think uh, this is a great place to start, right? Because access to care is the number one issue that I think we're facing here in at least the United States. Um, and and interesting, we just recently did a paper on access to care, and it is so hard to find real information from major uh, organizations about how long their waiting list is and how mm. long people get in the door. It's next to impossible to find published information on this issue. 
anecdotally, we know that people wait months and months to be able to get mm. in the door. And and I think this is very, very problematic, not only for racial minorities, just for anybody seeking mental health. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's exacerbated for uh, racial ethnic minorities in the way that that the system treats folks on the wait list. There's very little um, supplemental activities they can do. There's very little um, care that's given on a wait list. And I think a lot of organizations just struggle to know what to do with the wait list besides keep it. Um, mm. I think for racial minorities, they're looking for um, providers who potentially look like them, who share their cultural values, who understand where they're coming from, who understand like the day-to-day of microaggressions and macroaggressions that are happening towards them. And far too often we see that the the treatment, once they get into the to care, replicates some of their experiences in the room. Mm-hmm. And that's understandable because like well-meaning therapists are human and we all make mistakes. We all make missteps. And I think that's the challenge that we've seen in my research is how do we make therapists more aware and better able to, to address this? Mm-hmm. I think the access to care issue um Right. There's the two sides of the coin. There's getting in the door and then making sure that when they get in the door, the, the, the care is good. And how do we monitor that? How do we you know, assure people that they're getting matched to therapists that are mm-hmm. their preferences based on what they would, would like to see? And, and I think our, our mental health system is not up to that challenge yet. Yeah. Well, there's several issues you raised, which we're going to um, delve into, I think, in more detail. You know, uh, recently I was asked to write a paper on the alliance, and the challenge was not just an alliance with the therapist, but um, the alliance more generally in mental health care. So I discussed the issue about alliance with the system of care, and I think that's a an issue for all people seeking care, but particularly for those who have been mistreated by various systems. So when you think of racial and ethnic minorities having to deal with bureaucracies that um, uh, are biased or, or discriminative in some way, dealing with a system of care must be frustrating and demeaning in many ways. So say something from your experience about uh, not at the therapy level, but at the at the relationship that people have with their system of care. Well, I think you're exactly right. I, I refer to it as institutional betrayal. Mm-hmm. And that there is a, a sense that, you know, we understand what inter- interpersonal betrayal is, um, but from an institutional level, that, that exists. And it definitely exists for brown and black folks in particular and people in poverty. And I think that when we think about institutional betrayal, most therapists walking in the door of their their office don't see themselves as the institution that they represent. They think about Mm -hmm. themselves as well-meaning, which they probably are, um, helpful, caring, empathetic, and really wanting to do good. And I believe that's true for, you know, all the therapists I've met, that's their motivation, right? They want to help people. But they're part of an institution that has betrayed the trust of so many people. And so mm-hmm. therapists to not recognize that they are a member of this institution and represent it, it's starting the therapy on a falsehood. And mm-hmm. I think that therapists need to recognize, especially for minority folks, that they're coming into the space that's not safe inherently mm-hmm. for them. 
unconsciously, yeah. consciously, um, generationally, right? We can just mm. think of all the different steps that, that come into play here. And I think as therapists, part of a social justicely oriented or multiculturally oriented approach is to first recognize that you're you're part of the power system, the power dynamic for that yeah. thing in front of you. And I, I don't think therapists like to hold that, right? Because it's mm-hmm. it's not like I didn't do this. I hear that a lot when I do trainings. I didn't, I'm not part of the system. I'm like, yeah, you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it or not. You know, I mean, if you like it or not, like we're all like coming from like a Freudian space right like we all teach freud and like to you know say like oh he was crazy well he was doing the best he could at the time and mm-hmm. yet legacy lives on and the structures that have been set in place for generations is part of our legacy and so we have mm-hmm. to deal and including racism including institutional betrayal and injustices mm-hmm. i think that's such an important point that we don't just walk into a to an interview room and see our patient, and that's the entirety of the mental health treatment because um, this person had to deal with receptionists, had to deal with treatment by the system, uh, the wait list, as you say, without much explanation of what's going to happen uh, and how long they might have to wait. I mean, a good friend of mine, Steve Sandage out at uh, Boston University, they did a study of the kind of relationship it wasn't really the alliance as we define alliance but it was kind of what is your relationship like with the front desk staff hmm. that actually predicted outcome and so oh. to, to your point like it's a team effort and hmm. you don't value your front desk staff if you don't value the person who's uh cleaning up your your space like we're missing something in humanity and the holistic treatment of our clients hmm. And I would also say that there's uh, some research coming out of the UK, part of my team, I think Jeff Hayes out of Penn State, have been doing some studies of looking at um, not therapist effects, but center effects. Mm-hmm. We yeah. see centers differ. Yeah. One of my findings is the best therapist who's at the worst center is still doing worse than the worst therapist at the best center. Wow. Yeah. So if you just think about so it, Jesse, what what are the center factors do you think that are really important here? I mean, we've discussed some uh, relationship with the the receptionists and the staff and so forth, but there's more to it than that, I assume. So what do you think is going on in those centers that uh, are consistently producing poor outcomes? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if we're quite there yet, um, but if I had to speculate, um, I think resources. And so when we talk about cultural issues and mm. the power of money in this society to to think through, like, what are the resources? Are the therapists burned out, right? Um, mm. Michael Barkman and his team found burnout, therapists burnout kind of for a huge percentage of the outcomes. And burnout, as we know, is an institutional thing. Mm. Um and if you have a thousand patients on your caseload, you're not going to do well. We just know yeah. that. Yeah. I also think that, you know, one of our studies we found for racial ethnic minorities, um, they do worse when they're on predominantly white campuses for college counseling center outcomes mm. at relative to the white clients. And so even if we think about institutions or centers as being a fixture within communities, we have to think about what happens outside of the therapy room. 
we have to think about the environment that folks are walking back into. Mm. If we don't, and we just focus on the individual in that one-on-one hour, there's so many more hours they're not in our in our space. Yeah. And I think that as therapists, I, I think the family therapists and the couples folks do this a lot better than all the other orientations about thinking systemically is is key and thinking that mm-hmm. way is just really really important um for all of us to kind of keep a mind on especially for uh minority based folks because they're walking into a world that's not necessarily safe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the context in which uh uh patients find themselves has an effect on the outcome and sure. again we have this attitude as therapists that, uh, well, this one hour a week, we can change somebody's life without really, as you say, understanding the systemic factors. And even the situation of the clinic in the community and the funding of the clinic, the climate of the community, uh, clinic, these all have an effect. Yeah, I mean, if I can just, uh, as an anecdote, one of the... I, one of my first practicum spots was at a middle school and it was a lower income, uh, very, very diverse uh, middle school in Miami, Florida. And this is how it became focused on couples and systems is that I was working with these kids and I was sending them back to the most dysfunctional homes and these kids weren't getting better. And I'm like, well, of course I'm not working with the system. I'm sending them back to uh, in harm's way. And mm. Of course, we have to think about the context. And so I stopped working with kids after that. And so it's like, I need to work with families and couples. Mm. And, and what I realized is that the dynamics of the family obviously translate for generations, but also the systemic barriers for a lot of these families that they were facing, you know, just tons mm. of violence and all sorts of things in their communities. And to to not recognize that is, is just, a, just a misgiving. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because uh, I interviewed Michael Barnard Barkham and Jamie Delgadillo uh, recently, and they brought up there's big neighborhood effects. So the neighborhood in which the client belongs has a big impact on the outcome. And as you say, we're working with someone inner psychic problems, but we send them back to to a dysfunctional home or facing. Uh, uh, challenges economically or there's racial discrimination and and uh issues well we really have to think of this more broadly than just what we can do as a therapist absolutely and i think the the challenge is for any therapist that i've known is they agree 100 with everything that we're talking about right now bruce yeah and- and they say, I still have to see my 30 clients a week. Yeah. I don't have time to do this. I don't have, we don't get reimbursed for this. And mm-hmm. I think that there's something larger from a governmental standpoint or community activism that we need to think about alternative solutions such that the therapist who's pouring their heart and soul into their work isn't feeling like this is another thing that they have to do because as we learned during the pandemic, one more thing, it's just one more thing that's burning people out. And mm. some of the work right now that we're doing on therapist burnout, it's really interesting to see how many people say things. We just did a qualitative interviews with about 15 therapists. And the one of the themes is not about what you do, but it's how you do it that burns mm. people. 
right? So like, it's not about changing your caseload. It's about re-innovating yourself in different ways. And so when we talk about cultural dynamics and the virtues that come with cultural humility, for instance, um, I think there's a lot of power in our ability to really think through how are we channeling those kind of character strengths and in, embedding them into our work. And mm-hmm. it, it does make a difference. Um, there's just a recent study published that therapists or that clients can actually increase their culture humility throughout therapy. And that's a catalyst to help them change in other dimensions. Mm-hmm. And so even if we think about how do we cultivate character strengths, I don't, I don't know if we're in the same space as we used to be about talking about things like humility, forgiveness, gratitude, mm. the power of those yeah. people. Yeah. But our society needs it greatly. So Jesse, let's talk about therapists because uh, you mentioned them several times in, in the research and in your interaction. And, you know, we're, we're both... Uh, professors in training programs. We've worked with uh, lots of trainees. Um, You mentioned that, well, uh, racial and ethnic minority clients would like to receive services from someone who looks like them, who has experiences like them, or at least uh, has an understanding of what their life uh, as a minority person is like. But, you know, most of the students we train to be therapists are white, and they all, uh, with few exceptions, and I don't know of any, are really dedicated to providing the best service that they can to all clients. Um, Yet, as you say, they're going to claim, hey, I'm I'm open to, to other racial and ethnic groups. Um, uh, I don't, I'm not prejudiced. I'm not biased. I've examined myself. Yet we know from the research that you have done and other groups have done that not all therapists are uh, equally effective with various racial and ethnic minority groups. So talk about what it takes for, let's say, a white therapist to be effective with racial and ethnic minority clients? Yeah, it's a great question. And I agree with you. I, I, you know, I I think sometimes in this literature, we we end up running down a path of, of almost like cancel culture. Like if the therapist isn't doing well, we need to get them out. And like, I, I really come from an educational standpoint. First, we got to understand if they do have disparities within their caseload. And then what do we do about that? What does it mean for that therapist to learn different approaches? And so when myself and Karen Tao developed the multicultural orientation framework, we were focused really on three pillars that we thought could move the meter on, on therapist training, and which was culture humility as an attitudinal or a stance um, to embrace curiosity, to assume that we don't know. Cultural opportunities, right? Are we listening for those session markers? I think Les Greenberg's work on the EFT and like really identifying markers and treatment really inspired our work to think about like mm-hmm. what are the cultural markers that clients are talking about? And do you follow those cultural markers or are you really focused on symptoms? Not mm-hmm. to say good or bad, but like if you're not touching on the cultural dynamics, you're not maximizing, in my opinion, um, the power that comes from cultural healing. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, it's like what we wanted to see and what we learned through a lot of our interviews with folks and um, watching folks on Skillsetter, for instance, uh, do um, these 
responses to clients, some of these folks were pretty nervous. They looked mm. pretty stunned by yeah. what they're doing. And that's totally fine. I think that's the great power of, of um, modules from like skill set or whether it's mock clients, you're not harming anybody. You could say something that's really outlandish and then you could try it again and you can try it again. Like, I think the power of that, what we found in the cultural opportunities was that people can focus in on their body, see how comfortable they are in mm-hmm. these conversations and then work on that. Um, and with those three elements, we found that there's a lot of research now that we have for all three of those elements to be predictive of therapy outcomes. Mm. Also to be predictive of supervisory relationships, to be predictive of concealment and supervision. And so there's mm. a lot of power that comes from these three dimensions. And yet one of the things that we know about human nature and where I kind of got to this point is that early on, I was interested in confirmatory bias. And therapists, just like every other human, makes really quick judgments about people. And so the humility stance to me was a great backstop to this, right? It's a way for us to check our assumptions because we're going to have them, right? And so for, for my trainees, I say, don't think about not having assumptions. Don't think about the fact that you're not going to make a quick judgment. Think about what you're going to do next, mm-hmm. right? Right when that client walks in the door. You're going to have a quick judgment about what they look like, how they walk, all of those things right off the bat. And so that's natural. That's just human interactions. But what do you do with it next is is more important than what comes to your mind initially. Yeah, it's really interesting, Jesse. Um, uh, There's a lot to unpack there, but let's start with this part. This is something that therapists can practice and get better doing. So it isn't just saying hey, look, you're not getting very good outcomes with racial and ethnic minority clients. We're just going to assign clients to someone else. Now, this is a, a, these are skills that can be learned and practiced, and you can get better, not just with racial and ethnic minority clients, but with all clients. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the pillars. So, Talk more about cultural humility. What is it? Uh, how does it work? How do we develop it? Yeah, so cultural humility has two polarities. There's an intra and inter piece to this. The, the fundamentals of the interpersonal nature of cultural humility is not assuming that you know uh, somebody's cultural background. Even if you identify with the that person with the same identity, the lived experience within any given cultural group is so varied that we need to start off with the assumption. And I always tell my students, I'm like, ask them about their experience within their cultural identity. Don't ask them about their cultural identity. I identify as biracial, but just knowing that label for me tells you nothing about me, right? What mm. what has that been like growing up biracial is a much better question, a much, uh, much more curiosity-based question. And mm. it really helps develop what a normal intake question would be around a cultural identity, right? And so that nature of curiosity, uh, stance of not knowing, right? So the question that I always ask my students is, what do you need to unlearn so you can learn new things, mm-hmm. right? And I think the power of that question, and it stumps all my students at first, but like when we start to unpack that question, it really gets to humility, right? What are you doubling down on as a thing that you you know fundamentally and it's unchangeable, that's the thing you need to unlearn, 
right? Um, with some exceptions, of course. Uh, but like when you have those kind of cultural beliefs that are so ingrained that you're not going to get rid of them or not even going to have any flexibility with them. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I mean, that's the nature of life, but it's also the nature of, of pathology, right? Like that rigidness mm-hmm. kind of builds into a sense of non-flexibility, which is at the heart, the flexibility part is at the heart of cultural humility of trying to understand it. I think the other piece to this for cultural humility in particular is not taking a stance of um, not knowing, right? It's not that you don't know anything about people's cultural backgrounds, but you need to check it, right? You need to make sure that you're monitoring what you think you know versus new knowledge coming in because you don't want to put the client or student in a place where they're, they're teaching you about their culture. You want mm. it to be a relational dynamic, right? It's not that you don't know anything, and maybe you don't know anything, but you have to be the intro piece of this. You have to be open to feedback. You have to be doing your own work outside of the session. And if you're not, then that's not living the the culture of humility life. It's pretending. So, Jesse, for me, that's the difficult part is to be curious and understand uh, uh, the client's experience as a racial person and an ethnic person, and we all are, uh, without being intrusive and asking them, uh, oh, here's another white person asking them to explain what their experience is like. That's always been a, a, a difficult thing for me to, to manage in my own uh, uh, therapy, but in, in interactions, with people in society. So talk a little more how you balance those two things. Yeah, I think the the real issue that I think a lot of therapists have, and I think this is reflected in some of our literature, is having the conversation for conversation's sake doesn't make any sense. And so I remember reading an article that said, for every client you have if they're racial, ethnic minority, you have to ask them, hey, I'm not your race, insert whatever race they are. How do you think this is going to work? Which is just so artificial mm-hmm. and, it, and it doesn't make sense. And so like when I talk about it, it's like sometimes you need to be more explicit about the cultural dynamics. Sometimes it's more implicit. Right. So mm-hmm. what did you learn growing up about how healing happens, about mental mental health and mental illness? Like what what lessons did you learn? Who did you learn mm-hmm. that stuff? Right. Mm-hmm. And, inherently in those questions is culture. And if you're listening for it, you can kind of then maximize healing through those lessons of, that they've learned over, over their lifetime, right? Are they coming in with a lot of shame? Are they coming in with, this, this is not okay to voice my concerns? Or I had this one client, male client, who first session, he's like, you're not going to get me to cry, are you? Right? He learned something about the nature of crying and what it means to be a man and crying that we were able to unpack later on. But I think mm-hmm. about that. the nature of that question was really helpful clinically about how do you understand your distress and where do those messages mm-hmm. come from and what's how is that important to you? Because if it's not in service of healing, then it's just kind of like mm-hmm. voyeurism and nobody mm-hmm. likes that, right? Like, mm-hmm. So in my mind and the MCO framework is how do you have a natural conversation with another human being about how they grew up and who they are? And how their cultural identities are tied to that, or maybe not tied to that. And how does that, how's that going to unfold in the therapy room? Because mm-hmm. if it's not a natural conversation, this is where the cultural comfort piece comes in. If it's not a natural conversation, 
then you're just doing stuff to do it because you feel like you need to check a box. Mm. And I think that's the downfall of where the field has been in some ways, not all the ways, in some ways throughout the training pieces is that it feels much more like a checkbox. And then people feel like, oh, I have to check this box because I need to be, you know, multiculturally incompetent. And so if I don't check mm-hmm. this box, what's that t- say about me as a therapist or the human? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Uh, well, the naturalness of the conversation uh, is really important. That it's, as you say, it's not something we have to do because, hey, we have to be open to the other culture. We need to talk about it. But to actually incorporate it into the therapeutic work in a way that makes sense. That's really important. Jesse, in in some of this uh, conversation, you've referred to these markers. So uh, we respond to... Um, cultural issues, uh, both in our relationship, but also in the in the problems the client is experiencing, based on the markers in the session. So, talk some more about what are the markers. Yeah, so let me give you a couple of examples because I think it, it comes to light in a different way. Um, like I had a client at one point; um, she was an African American woman, single mom. And she would always schedule her sessions the very first session of the day, like 9 a.m. And invariably, like every single session, she was about five to 10 minutes late. And she was in school. She was in graduate school. And she was trying to get her kid out the door to school and trying to do all these things. And my supervisor, who was more psychodynamically trained, said, you need to process her resistance for coming to therapy. And I said, I'm absolutely not going to do that. I said that in my head. (laughs) Um, instead i had a coffee maker in my my office and so instead i just made coffee and so when she sat down she had a fresh cup of coffee and then we'd start and about five sessions in she's like you know i really wanted a black therapist but you really get me and it was probably the best Mm -hmm. compliment i've had for um in a, in a therapy session. And then we, I was like, well, let's talk about that. What do you mean by that? In terms of like, what do you mean? Mm. Issue? And she's like, you understand uh, me. You understand the dynamics of being a single mom, the troubles of getting a kid out the door and being here on time. She's like, you kind of get all of that. You also get the fact that all these stories about me being the only one of the only black people, people in her grad program, you get, you get that. And it was a really interesting thing of like, that's a conversation we can continue. And that was really helpful as a marker because she mentioned it. And also I didn't pathologize her, her lifestyle. I didn't pathologize that she was five to 10 minutes late. Right. And so just understanding those dynamics and leaning into them and not making them resistance, right. Changed our Mm. our relationship and deepened our relationship. I think Mm. a more clear and concrete example of a very, exchange marker is um, my brother committed suicide about nine years ago. And so I went to therapy and the therapist said, Hey, you know, sometimes when people are grieving, um, they turn to religion or, or God. I'm curious if that's important to you. And I said, no, because I'm not a religious person. He's like, okay, well, I just wanted to check. And then we moved on with the rest of the session, but he initiated that cultural marker based on what he knew about healing and coping with grief Asked it, I said no, and he was responsive and moved on. And so I think about creating those markers in session for therapists as they, you know, see the problem at hand, understand that there's certain cultural dynamics that might unfold, and then how do you deal with that, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's the curiosity 
that this therapist had about how you cope with uh, this grief, uh, which is a really difficult thing to deal with. And yeah, some people do it through religious and spiritual means. And it's natural to ask about that. It was totally natural. And um, I mean, I think about another client that I had who lost somebody in a, in a tragic accident and she was really religious. And then she, she mentioned in session, she's like, why would God do this to me? Why am I being punished like this? Why would they do this to my relative? And then she went on and she was like, this is why I'm depressed. This is why I'm depressed. And it was almost like in a rumination kind of way. She's like, I don't even know if I should be here anymore. What's the point of living? And so there we have a very clear consideration, right? Do you follow suicide ideation or do you talk about the relationship with God? And mm. so I started with a relationship with God. Obviously circled back around at the you know end of the session to check in for suicide ideation still. But that marker could have gone a slightly different way. I could have you know hammered home on the suicide ideation and maybe never got into a relationship with God. Right. Do a an evaluation and a safety check rather right. than the important part was why is God doing this to me? Right. And I didn't have the answers, obviously, of, of the religious piece. But what I did know is that she used to be really connected to her church and she fell away from it. And I was like, maybe this is a moment that you need to ask those questions with your with your pastor and figure out that conversation. And she did. And I think that was a really turning point for her therapy and healing because she got reconnected to the church. Mm -hmm. And and that was a huge source of coping. And you know, we continued our work with the grief stuff. But I, I think that when we think about those moments, and especially for trainees, if trainees are listening to this, it's not that you're minimizing the suicide ideation. It's that you're maximizing healing. Mm -hmm. And you still should be concerned about the suicide ideation, of course. And mm -hmm. don't, don't forget that, those pieces. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because in my observation, uh, uh, particularly trainees, they hear the word, suicide or they hear the word i don't want to live anymore with the words i don't want to live anymore go immediately to this uh evaluation of risk and it becomes almost a rote uh, uh exercise as a managing risk more than it is curiosity about what's what's going on. And of course, you, as you say, you want to circle back to it because uh, that's part of standard of care. But it isn't what was most important at that moment for her. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So there's a yeah. lot of, I was going to say, there's a lot of these opportunities that when we've structured some, uh, some videos, some training videos for folks around how do you respond to these moments, right? And then what are those markers mm -hmm. that you're picking up and what are you missing? And one of the things that we're finding, and you know, educationally, like this is kind of an uh, aha. Of course, this makes sense. When we ask people to write about their response, it's actually pretty good. Their intentions are pretty good. Mm. Their actual response <laughs> it doesn't mirror what they can write, right? And developmentally, you can think about why that could be the case. And so, one of the things I try to encourage folks to do is write about what you want to say, and then figure out how to say it. Mm. Right? Talk me through how you'd want to approach this case. And then now let's practice some things, right? So like scaffolding these responses to cultural dynamics 
can be very, uh, very helpful and also build self-efficacy, right? Because mm-hmm. if you're not saying it right, just telling them that they're not saying it right doesn't really help, right? Providing some some foundation and encouragement and validation, like, yeah, you're on the right page. You're, this is where you could go, helps mm-hmm. out with, with the responses, right? So support, I mean, support and then challenge, right? We know yeah. this, it's just in this different dynamic. Well, it's an interesting observation and uh, uh, educational practice. So it's clear that these therapists have an idea about how the conversation should go. Putting it into words, uh, maybe because you're anxious or maybe because you just don't have much experience doing it. Then it takes some practice doing it. So the, the discrepancy between intent and the actual speech acts uh, have to come together. And I, I think in some ways, I mean, it's kind of weird in 2022, but I think in a lot of ways, people don't want to mess it up, right? Especially around cultural topics. They don't want to say something wrong. They don't want to put themselves out there too far. They get nervous. And I understand all of that. And yet they happen all the time, right? Yeah. And we put more pressure on them. I mean, these are issues you should pay attention to. Don't get it wrong. You're going to commit a microaggression. So monitor everything you're doing. So you become even more self-conscious than you might have been. Yeah, I I also think that there's an interesting shift in the culture of if you say something wrong, should you like lose your job? Should you lose all these things and be punished for it? Um, and I think what people are missing is people's intentions a lot mm. of the time and that we see people across industries really pay a high price for miss, you know, miss, you know, just saying something offensive that, that they didn't intend it to be. Mm. If they intended to be, that's a different story. But like, um, I, I do think that we need to dial down, um, the, the pressure on people and have a little bit of grace for people mm-hmm. to make it. Yeah. You know, I really, I mean, I see this in my training program where people get worked up and, and it, it to me, it, it doesn't answer the fundamental question when we're trying to repair these ruptures, which is, do you want to have a relationship with this person? Mm-hmm. And if you do, yelling from the rooftops is probably not the way that they're going to hear that feedback very well. And just like any other rupture, right? If your partner was just put you on blast on to all your friends just because you said, said something, you know, offensive, that's not the way to heal that situation. You mm-hmm. have to, and have to explain. Yeah. And like the uh, literature on alliance ruptures, this is really a co-constructed agreement about what's going on. I mean, I've heard. Uh, students, faculty, other people say, hey, you know, I heard this racist comment. I don't want anything to do with this person. And they're finished. When that really just exacerbates the problem because there's no opportunity for any kind of uh, learning or uh, um, uh, seeing the intentions or finding common ground. Absolutely. I mean, I- you know, the, the conversations we were having about this really called to my mind, uh, Bill Miller, and in his book on therapist, uh, he says, 
I don't know if he says the number one, but one of the most important characteristics of effective therapists is curiosity. Are you curious about the lived experience? And that includes the cultural piece, the diversity piece. I think this is, I think that's absolutely right. I I think the, the one thing that we can't, I think the one place where we assume that we don't see what's going on is that everything is culturally based. And so, and I know you know this from your work in Norway and other places that, you know, if you go to a different country and see their mental health system, you'd be blown away about <laughs> some of the innovations that they're doing in other countries. Um, but if you think about just the assumptions that come with CBT, psychodynamic, any approach, it's based on a human being who wrote those words down. And that person has a cultural background and a cultural understanding of how they see the world. And these are all great theories. I, I like them all. I do think that if we don't assume that those are culturally based, then we're running afoul for some clients that might not necessarily fit the assumptions that are based in those those models. Mm, yeah. And, right. So I think that's the piece that's not talked about nearly enough in these models when we think about core beliefs. Well, core beliefs are cultural beliefs. Right. And so mm. just changing the name from core to cultural or maybe core cultural beliefs changes the way we think about those beliefs, that they're tied to history. They're tied to lessons taught by their parents. They're tied to lessons taught by their grandparents and their grandparents. And and when we think about the fundamental, how hold, how like cherished those beliefs are, you're not just challenging those core beliefs. You're challenging their mom, their grandmother, their mm, grandfather. Yeah. Like, that's a huge piece, right? I think that mm. is gravity of what we're talking about when we're talking about multicultural orientation is understanding that and really understanding what to do with it. So that's a great point, Jesse. I mean, the fact that the treatments we give make certain assumptions about cultural values. I mean, the the, the most apparent example may be cognitive behavioral therapy because it assumes a very rational approach to uh, living, and we can look at our cognitions and understand what's rational and what's maladaptive. And mm-hmm. that's a very uh, kind of foreign concept to many cultural groups and even many people within the kind of white European culture. Yeah. With this this uh, focus on on cognitions. So um, let's talk about treatments for a minute since we're, we got onto this. Uh, so we have evidence-based treatments. They've uh, undergone scrutiny of clinical trials. We know they work uh, as well or better than other treatments. So uh, racial and ethnic minority clients, well, we want to give them the best treatment, so we should choose one of these evidence-based treatments. How do you see it? So I think I think the evidence-based treatments has, has taught us a lot, right? There's some really good nuggets of wisdom in a lot of these treatments. I know you and I both know uh, several people who've developed them, and it's a labor of love. Like it is, it is tough 
to come up with the right package and right treatment packages. Um, I, I think that a lot of these treatments will work and have been shown to work with racial ethnic minorities in particular. Um, and then I think the other piece that happened along the same pathway of manualized treatments or kind of guided manualized treatments was the adaptation of treatments for cultural groups. Mm-hmm. And I think it was probably the biggest mistake that the field's made around cultural issues in a long time. Not to say that these cultural adaptations aren't beneficial in some ways and that there's not there's some evidence that shows that they um, can work. But in a lot of studies, they don't really work all that well. Like some of the meta-analyses show that they don't really do anything more than um, other non-adapted treatments. If you look at Huey's work and his meta-analyses, I think he's uh, kind of painted that picture pretty well. But I so think- So let, let me clarify, Jesse. Are you saying that that if we adapt, let's say, CBT for uh, single Black mothers, that that's not- going to make the treatment uh, more effective or or more acceptable than if we stuck to the canonical CBT. Yeah, I, I just don't think that on the whole, I don't think that the evidence is there to, to say that doing that treatment package, will it work still? Yeah, I think it will work. Well, you mentioned the word acceptable. I think that's the key in some of these pieces. Is it believable? Is it credible? Mm. Um, I, I wonder if they might have the advantage there and what the what that does to the treatment. I'm not sure. But what I'm saying is, so you gave a good example, single, black, female, right? You're talking about intersectionality now, right? And if mm. we think about the combination of treatments that we would have to create, it's in the hundreds of thousands to address all of these different intersecting identities. Mm. And that's just not practical, right? Yeah, Steve Benish found in his meta-analysis when treatments are adapted, particularly around the rationale for the treatment, they seem to be more effective. So is that more, is the distinction between kind of a blanket adaptation, like the treatment, CBT treatment for single black mothers, as opposed to adapting it for the person sitting in front of you in a way that makes sense? Is that a useful distinction? I think it is. And that's also part of the things that influence the MCO framework is that, one, I think these treatment manuals and these manualized treatment approaches in the real world, nobody's using them. Um, I don't think that they are being disseminated in a way that people are using them with the fidelity that they are in treatment studies. Some of the principles are being used. And I think from this analogy, from a cultural standpoint, is if you are understanding the rationale for healing, that the client sitting across from you has, you can work with that, right? Mm-hmm. So then you can become more syntonic with their way of being in life and understand what are they missing or what are they might not be seeing here and give them that gift, right? In there. Mm-hmm. I, I also think that there's a misnomer here, right? These manualized treatments came out of a time where it was very disorder specific. So you had CBT for depression, CBT for anxiety, and you know Barlow moved to the unified protocol for CBT, and I think we've seen some evolutions in other spaces. But it assumes that you can manualize something. Mm-hmm. You can't manualize me, right? Like, as a human being, you can't manualize me. You can manualize my disorder, but you can't mm-hmm. manualize my culture. And I think the assumptions that are in these culturally adapted treatments is that we can. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that that is potentially going down a road of saying this culture needs this, right? Mm. Oh, we always hear that like men need more directive treatments. Mm. Well, studied that more masculine clients actually wanted more relational and feeling stuff, right? Mm. And so a lot of the assumptions that we run with um, based on these stereotypes can be really harmful. And I think it's harmful because it promotes stereotypes and, that, and it takes the human out of the equation of that the cultural differences within a culture, between cultures, it's, it's, it's not cared for. It's not noticed. It's not realized in some of these manualized approaches. Mm-hmm. So you make a really important point that that manualizing for a particular group and, and sometimes it's intersectionality as well as uh, race and, and racial identity and so forth is another way of just kind of stereotyping what's needed for a person with these characteristics, which are maybe unrelated to the that person's actual life and for the particular problem and context in which they're find themselves so the the adaptation is fine but it's adaptation to a particular person rather than a group of people yeah and i'm gonna i mean i i do think um some of these culturally focused treatments have done good things for the field too right like if you take uh stephanie budge's work with trans individuals and trans sensitive therapy that is a great approach and I, there's a lot of people who need education around how to treat uh, trans individuals. That's fantastic. And I think as she continues to explore that treatment and those those approaches, we're going to learn a ton for the field. And it's mm-hmm. going to be great, especially for the mm-hmm. trans. And so I'm not saying people shouldn't go down that route, but I think we should think about more of the application and delivery of treatment than mm-hmm. sticking to principles 100% from a manual. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, is where, this is where the therapist effect stuff comes in, right? The, yeah. Well, we know some therapists giving exactly the same treatment as other therapists get better outcomes. So it's the way in which these treatments are administered. And some of the research you've done and I've done show that flexibility in the way you deliver treatments. Again, that's a when we talk about flexibility, it's an adaptation to this particular patient that seems to be important. Yeah. And so the MCO framework with cultural humility, opportunities, and comfort really kind of speaks to the process piece, right? We weren't mm. trying, this is why we call it a framework and not a model or guidelines or anything. It's just a framework that you can apply to any given treatment. It might look different in CBT versus humanistic, but the principles still apply. And I think that's the key uh, for our framework is that we didn't want to make it cultural countertransference because then you're really talking yeah. more dynamic yeah. audience. Mm-hmm. But we know that people have reactions. We know people have assumptions about people and we just need to name it and kind of understand what it's doing for the course of treatment. Mm-hmm. I think the second piece of this, we haven't really touched on this much, but um, is are you aware of what you don't know, right? So part of cultural humility is receiving feedback. And I've been a, a champion of monitoring something about your therapy for a long time. If it's client's well-being, if you're tracking your own outcomes, if you're tracking dropout rates, whatever you're tracking, do it consistently so you have, so you have a feedback loop. We just finished a study where there was a, ther- there was a set of therapists that had 100% dropout rates. 
Mm. And we're talking about some, yeah. somewhere across these therapists, around 1,500 therapist clients didn't make it to third session. Mm. Like, what are we doing to channel some feedback to those folks to say, hey, something's not clicking here. And what can we do to help you? And so when we think about like the gravity of the situation of people not receiving feedback, it starts on day one of training, right? We train, I would argue, and this might be controversial, but I think we train people on how to talk about therapy. It's right. one of my, my pet peeves, Jesse. <laughs> right? If you can say the right words in supervision about your clients and sound mm. really smart doing it, you are going to sail through... Uh, your your training program. And the reason is that less than 1% of any session a trainee has is ever seen by somebody else besides the client. And when we think about the gravity of that, we wouldn't go to a surgeon who only had 1% of their surgeries ever observed during their training program. Like that just doesn't make sense. And yet we continue down this cycle of these training models that really haven't been adapted that much in decades. And I think the problem is, in some ways, is that accreditation hasn't looked at feedback for themselves either. And I think this is probably another reason why when we look at outcomes over the last 70 years, they really haven't changed that much. We've put a ton of energy and ton of time into researching all this stuff. So it's not a lack of trying, but we still haven't gotten there to where, right, why shouldn't outcomes in naturalistic settings or in RCTs be double than what they were 50 years ago, 60 years ago? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, Scott Miller used the examples, the the world's record in the uh, 400 meter hurdles keeps going down consistently over time. People are getting better. Psychotherapy, not so much. So, Jesse, I mean, this, this idea about we're not really giving the proper feedback to trainees about what they need to learn. We only watch as you said, 1% of their actual work. And when we do, the feedback isn't very specific about mm -hmm. what needs to be changed. You know, I've sat through supervision sessions, case conferences, the focus 99.9% .9 is on the patient. Mm -hmm. Well, I think they're borderline. No, no, they're narcissistic personality disorder. And that discussion, or they're they have difficulty with you because of this. Whatever it is, the focus is on uh, the patient. Occasionally, it's focused on, well, what were you feeling mm -hmm. when the client said this? But hardly ever is it focused on the skill. Let's practice responding to these cultural markers, for instance. Let's uh, respond, uh, practice responding when you've been challenged by the client about your competence. Things like this, it takes, it takes not just practice, but specific feedback. So I'm a little bit on my rant, uh, <laughs> but you seem to be agreeing. So I'll get my point in here. Well, no, I, well, I do agree with you hundred percent. And I think when it comes to, if you think about that 1% of sessions that are ever seen by anybody, how many of them are for culturally diverse clients? Mm -hmm. And how much is that discussion based on those identities and how that unfolded in the room? 
And so when you think about how people are getting trained and the lack of just direct observations, I, I think the other piece that it comes down to is like, how diverse is your caseload and who are you showing in supervision? Because right? a lot of the times for many training programs, show me a tape. You pick the section that you want to show. You pick the mm. client that you want to yeah. show. And I get it. Like, I mean, I'm a supervisor and you can't, you don't have time to watch every session or even full sessions um, some of the time with your supervisee. So you're watching maybe 10 minute segment that they picked out, assuming that they know what segment to pick out. And you're making massive judgments about their career based on those little thin slices and thinking that that one segment generalizes to the rest of their clients. And so this is why I think about the feedback loops and having a stance of cultural humility is that would you even know if your racial ethnic minority clients are dropping out at a higher rate than your white clients? Mm-hmm. Would you even know the, the answer to that question? Mm-hmm. And like most good therapists, they they cherry pick their memories of like the clients that they really like and, you know, yeah. those. And I don't, I, I fall in that trap too. Yeah. The real quick question well, is, yeah. It's interesting because I, I think, and there's some research to show this, that, that what segments um, therapists pick to show are ones where are challenging but which they think they've handled the situation fairly well. So it's interesting, uh, Robbie Babins Wagner, who we're going to interview on this series uh, uh, in spring next year. She's director of the Calgary Counseling Center and the case presentations have to be the cases with the poorest outcomes. So the focus is on what can be done to improve uh, uh, rather than, hey, this is an opportunity to show uh, that I'm a reasonably competent therapist. I think that's a great system. That, that's I, I've known Rabbi for a long time, and she and that center are doing really innovative things at the systemic level to help their therapists, which I think is fantastic that you're going to have her on the series. I would. I want to mention one last thing about this feedback loops is where we started with some of the microaggression research is that we found that 50 to 70% of clients report at least one microaggression in their therapy. And those clients have worse outcomes. And so if you think about the picture that we've painted, we have well-meaning therapists. We have probably the intention was not to microaggress them, but it happened all the same. And so the real question is, was it resolved? And when we asked that question, was it resolved? A lot of people said it was, and those people did well. Right. Hmm. Resolving this. I mean, this is what we know about human nature, right? If you resolve this is the client's perception. And so my mind was like, why for those people who didn't resolve their microaggression or wasn't even addressed, why not? And so it many hypotheses, right? It could be the therapist just didn't know it happened, right? Hmm. Or uh, the client didn't say anything, or therapist didn't check in, a lot of those things. So we created videos where it was a simulated therapy session where the therapist actually committed three microaggressions within like 15 minutes. So kind of not unrealistic, but for a research standpoint, we needed to see. And so we had people click a button if they saw something um, that was good or something that was bad. So we didn't label it microaggressions. Mm -hmm. This was a trainee study. Out of the three microaggressions, only 25% of the trainees identify all three of those correctly. 25%. And any one microaggression... Um, accuracy rating was not over 50% for most of them. And so when we think about how do we build in feedback loops, 
you have to assume you're missing something and that's human nature. Right. And so what are you doing to check in with your patients? Maybe around microaggressions, maybe just generally how you checking in about the relationship between you and your, you and your clients is really important, especially for racial ethnic minority clients. Mm-hmm. So those studies, I think, have, and we've done some with um, some of the same study of microaggressions against uh, Muslims, uh, LGBT folks, and we're seeing similar results. And what what's interesting to me is it's not a method thing, I don't believe, because we've changed up the videos, we've changed it to just audio. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think it's there. people are reading it differently. I just think people miss these things. And that's human nature. Right. And we we tend not to want to think about the fact that I might have just uh, committed a microaggression. Uh, it's easier to go on and say, I don't think they noticed. And let's just continue because things seem to be going well. What's interesting in the study is when those get resolved or when the client thinks they're, they've been resolved, the outcomes of therapy is much better. Yeah, the alliance is restored and you know all the things that you would imagine with rupture repair, no, we know. But microaggressions are a little bit different. You know, I mean, by nature, microaggressions are supposed to create confusion. Did you just say that? You're a caring person. You're an attachment figure to me. Did that just happen to me? Right. This kind of train of thought goes on. And so, so the client might not be fully resolved if it was a microaggression until after the session or even weeks later. Mm-hmm. Well, Jesse, we're coming to the end of the hour. You've given us lots to think about. These are um, important issues. And, you know, the takeaway for me is that this takes work to do. It takes work to learn, practice, and improve. And I think that's a, a message that we, we really have to hear is that um, it's not about, am I a good person? Uh, do I have some racial bias? Do I uh, uh, examine my own uh, self and my cultural being? But to actual look at what's happening in therapy and be open to uh, this feedback that's really important. And then to practice it to get better. Definitely. And we do have just a little shameless plug. We do have a website for multicultural orientation. And there's also another website for multicultural orientation for deliberate practice as well, where there's some videos that you can watch and and do some of this work. So if you're interested in continuing the conversation, um, there's some places to find some resources. Jesse, just say a word where where the listeners can find those. Uh, Just go to multiculturalorientation.com. Great, great. So let's get to work. Do it. This is <laughs> inspiring. So I really appreciate spending the hour with you. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. Making Therapy Better is brought to you by CarePaths. CarePaths offers a complete behavioral health EHR and practice management software solution including claims, billing, clinical notes and documents, scheduling, and teletherapy, all for one simple and affordable monthly price. CarePath's EHR is HIPAA compliant and ONC certified and can also support electronic prescribing for an additional fee. Their latest release, CarePath's Connect, includes automated measurement-based care and the ability to create a digital front door for your practice, as well as a free mobile app designed to increase patient engagement. 
If you're just starting your practice or are dissatisfied with your current EHR, go to carepaths.com to start your free trial today. To find out more about Bruce Wampold and his work as CarePath's Chief Clinical Officer, visit makingtherapybetter.com.